Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This week we have Pastor Heath bringing a message entitled, A Call to Walk Through God's Open Doors. This is a continuation of his sermon series, What Matters to God, is found in Revelation chapter 3. Also today we have a special message from one of our oldest members, Miss Libby Dobbins. She celebrated her 103rd birthday this past week and has a great message for the church. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Don't avoid going to church. And if you know anybody that's not a Christian, invite them and take take time to talk to them and tell them what they're missing by not being a Christian and not mm-hmm. being in church. And when you get into it, you're just not satisfied without it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that should be the top thing for everybody to, think, to do. Read your Bible, pray a lot, and ask the Lord for, your, for guidance. And if you don't understand things, get the information you need to try to understand the Bible better. Mm-hmm. You've got to work together to make a church grow. Mm-hmm. And if they just pick at each other and find fault with everything they do, it, it won't work. You've got to work together. Mm-hmm. It, it was a, It's hard at times to try to please everybody. You can't please people. Right. You just have to do the best you can and try to keep it moving so you can work with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, that's important. Work with each other. You can't one go one way and one another. Everybody's got to be on the same side. You've all got to work together. Get better acquainted with everybody before you make a decision of whether you like them or not. Get acquainted with them. Think about it and get to know them. And then take it from there. That's the only thing I know. And then you know what's what they'll fit in, what they'll do. Mm. And then we need a preacher that's going to mix with all gener- the whole generation, mm-hmm. both generations, young and old, to make people wel- welcome at church when they come. Be sure that you check people when they come in, see if they've been there before. If you haven't, ask them where they're, where, if they're new. And try to make them welcome and let them know that we're interested in, in their life and their soul being and where they are. And if they're really interested in the church or what's what's going on mm-hmm. in their lives, mm-hmm. ask them questions where they're from and try to get acquainted with them. Always let the church, I try to let my church come first. I think, how's that going to feel? If somebody sees me here or if, I, if I'm going to be doing something that that might influence somebody else, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Think it over before you do it. And then, boy, you can avoid an awful lot of trouble that way. People quit working, they quit work doing things, let other things influence it too much, mm-hmm. and they don't consider what it's doing to the church mm-hmm. when they do other things. Mm-hmm. And it does. And then they ignore other people and they maybe get mad at somebody over some little silly something that don't mean mount up to a hill of beans. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's just 
you've got to keep it an open mind, don't you, Chrissy? Mm. You have to keep an open mind. Mm. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I think maybe we ought to just have the invitation and go home. What do you think? <laughs> don't get so excited. Don't count on that. Instead, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to continue our study this morning in the book of Revelation. Again, as a church, the very first sermon series we've started has a very specific purpose. As a church, we want to discern Jesus' will for the church. He, not the pastor, he, not the staff, he, not the members, is the head of this church. He gets to decide what we do, and that's what we're trying to figure out. What is Jesus like? What does he not like? And we've looked at several report cards already. Today, we find ourselves... This one's going to be a breath of fresh air, friends. It's the church at Philadelphia. There's nothing negative said about them. And so the introduction simply says in verse 7, And to the angel of the church at Philadelphia write, to the angel, the angelos, the messenger, the pastor, the leaders of the church, he writes a certain message to these people who are in Philadelphia, phileo adelphos, brotherly love, so named because the king who founded the city was so intimate and close with his brother, they named the city after that affection they had for one another. This was also a very influential city. It was in the middle of the postal route of the Romans, uh, Roman Empire. There was also several trade routes that would intersect through the city of Philadelphia, so many so that they called it the gateway to the east. So what's Jesus' posture toward this church? He says in verse 7, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Jesus represents himself as the one who is true, the one who is holy, the one who opens and closes doors at his will. He is a sovereign God. He is in control. He's in control of this church. He's also pictured as holding something in his hands, if you will, the key of David. Now, when we talk about David, David is a type of Christ. It's a picture of uh, the messianic line which comes through him. Jesus was born where? In the city of David. In Revelation 5.5, Jesus is called the root of David, that from which the rest of the plant springs forth. He is from the lineage and line of David. In fact, in Revelation 22.16, before the Bible signs off, Jesus says, I am the root and descendant of David. He's claiming, claiming divine authority and kingship. Now, to possess the key of David, that's something else. A key represents the right and authority to go somewhere. If you have a key to something, you have been authorized to be somewhere at a given time. Some of you have keys to this church. Some of you need to open up and unlock for Awanas or maybe a Sunday school or things like that. If you want to get into all the different mysterious places of this gigantic church, uh, you, know, you know how it's a maze, a tunnel network, like a, like a lab rat maze in here sometimes. If you want to get into all the places here, you've got to go hunt down Bessie because he has a wad of keys on that, brother. And because he's been authorized, if there's something here in this church, he's authorized to go there. And he can unlock the door. Furthermore, he can invite whomever he decides to come with him into those places that he's authorized to go. That's the picture of Jesus. He has, as the messianic king, he has the authority to open and close doors, allow some into the entrance of the kingdom of heaven, and to block it to those who refuse to bow their knee to Christ. 
He opens many doors. You're going to see as he gives the church at Philadelphia a proposition. He says, I know your works, that Jesus looks and, and sees everything that we do as a church. Does that intimidate you a little bit? It, it should a little. To know that the, the sovereign king of the universe, who is faithful and true, who opens and closes doors, he looks not just what Unity Baptist Church does as a whole, he looks at you. And he looks at me. He's heard every little thing that you've said this morning. He's heard everything that you've taught. He's seen everybody that you've loved. He's also seen if there's anybody that we've avoided. He's seen how we treated our children and our mate on the way to church. Jesus knows. And we're not just talking again about the church as a whole. You are the church. I am the church. We're church part, members of the church individually. He is sovereign and he sees our works. And what I'm most impressed with here after this is what Jesus does not say about Philadelphia. He doesn't say anything negative. Wouldn't you love that if Jesus said that about our church? that there's nothing negative to say, that Jesus himself looks through and he sees, well, there's, uh, there's no open and unrepentant sin in this church. Uh, there's no false teaching in this church. There's no complaining. There's no bitterness. There's no backbiting. There's no slander. There's no sowing discord. They're, they're not harboring false teachers within the church. They're not caving ethically to what the society is doing. I've got nothing bad to say. Friends, I want you to hear this. This is why Philadelphia is going to be such an encouraging church to study this morning. Where when you have a church where they're doing nothing that Jesus disapproves of, Jesus is free to freely work through that church. And I will add to that, it's the only kind of church that Jesus will work through. It's the kind of church that there isn't that division, there isn't that backbiting, there's not that slander, there's not that open, unrepentant sin. When Jesus finds that, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, the church that exalts Jesus Christ first is the kind of church that Jesus wants to lift up and draw men toward. And so this is where church growth is at, friends. It's in pleasing a singular individual. And he tells them, because they're a church for whom they says nothing negative, he can tell them this, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. When God talks about do open doors, uh, there's a couple of different ways that we can look at it. One is open doors for individuals, the, if you will, the keys to the kingdom. Jesus promised to Peter in, in, in Matthew 16, eight, uh, 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The keys to the kingdom, that which unlocks, gives authority to, and allows entrance into is the gospel, and God entrusted that to Peter, and by extension, each one of us. And by the way, that part about binding and loosing has nothing to do with demons, okay? I hear that all the time. I hear preachers, I hear people going, oh, I'm binding Satan, I'm binding those demons, I'm bind, bind God, bind this and bind that. Can I tell you, friends, this has nothing to do with demons right here. It's not about binding them. It, let me just tell you, God isn't binding Satan yet, okay? God is allowing Satan for some purpose to allow not free reign in the earth, but to allow to do some of, some of his work because God even has a plan in that. Just like he used evil King Nebuchadnezzar as my servant, God can even use the evil works of Satan to accomplish his will. He is right now the prince in power of the air. W operating in a limited fashion, he had to go ask permission to persecute Job. Even Peter, Jesus revealed to him, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I prayed that your faith might not fail. Okay, so he's, not, he's limited, but he's not going to be bound, friends. There will be a time he is bound during the, during the uh, not the tribulation, but the millennial kingdom. 
He's bound for a thousand years, he's re- and then he's released from the pit, and God deals with him finally. But until that point, let's not be calling demons and, and Satan names and things like that. That's not spiritual warfare. I've seen that before. You're just inviting trouble into your life. This binding and loosing instead has to do with authority to declare based on the word of God, a person is bound in their sins or they're loosed from it. Okay, and so let's let's not be doing that. It's also a term that binding and loosing was also a term used in church discipline, where a church can declare a person bound in their sins based upon their testimony in their life or loosed from their sins. We don't we don't hand out salvation, but we identify it based on the word of God. So Jesus is opening a door, but right here, not simply for individuals to be saved. When God opens a door to a corporate body like the church at Philadelphia, it's a different kind of door. It's a door for a wide open church ministry, that God is removing the obstacles that are in their way and allowing this church to move forward freely. An open door for ministry is often referenced in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 12, Colossians 4. Paul says, pray for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, that which was not revealed in the Old Testament. It's the gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done. This, friends, by the way, God opening doors is how churches truly grow in a healthy way. You can grow a church in a lot of other ways, but it won't be healthy. The healthiest way to grow a church is to first discern what the will of the head is and then to commit ourselves individually as people, not just a church body, individually as people to follow his lead. And then God opens doors for that church to to work freely and God draws people to that church because God draws people to the church that glorifies him. And we, friends, I believe, by the way, we have the makings here at Unity Baptist Church to be a Philadelphia I want you to hear that. I look around and I see you guys. I see your hunger for the word. I see your hunger for discipleship, your desire to reach out to people. I see the love that you share for one another. Friends, unity has the makings of a Philadelphia where God can open up doors for ministry to us, but it means that we individually as as individuals must glorify Christ and examine all that we do that we ourselves individually are doing what is pleasing to him. And only then will Jesus open the doors for ministry and allow this church to freely work and freely grow. Okay, I pray that you'll join me in that journey. But in the meantime... Uh, we can't, we, we've got to figure out what Jesus wants. And our other alternative simply is to ask the world what they want in a church. You can grow a church that way too. You can just go out to the world and just lick your finger, stick it in the air, see where the prevailing winds of culture go and say, oh, the, the world wants this, let's make this our church. Oh, men want this, let's make this our church. And pretty soon we're no longer a church, we're just a business. We're just carnival barkers. Step right up here to this church over here. I know there's a lot of churches over there. They're no good. You don't want to go there. We got this church here. We only preach for 15 minutes. Amen. You like that? 15-minute sermons. And we got, we got the best and liveliest services. We got the most comfortable seats. We have donuts out there, and we'll get you out on time every single Sunday. And you can grow a church like that. You can grow a church very quickly like that. Because at that point... We're simply appealing to the flesh of man and not to their spirit. We're we're appealing to their flesh and saying, I'm going to do what your flesh desires. I'm going to appease your flesh. I'm going to entertain your flesh. But friends, you can't build a church that honors Jesus and honors man. We've got a choice to make in a church. You cannot please man and please God. As a church, we've got to decide we're going to do one or the other. Paul said in Galatians 1.10, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? He says, or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, 
I would not be a servant of Christ. You tell me, friends, can we, can we try to just please everybody or make a church that the world wants to come to and still please Jesus? No, we cannot. We can grow a church big. There's a lot of big churches out there that multiply and grow, but it doesn't mean they're healthy. We want a church that grows the right kind of way. And so Jesus is going to give them a certain kind of praise this morning. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I know you have but little power. Little power. Little is the Greek word micros, as opposed to megas, micros dunamis, micros ability, micro ability. Jesus, you know what he's calling you? He's calling you weak. Are you okay with that? That Jesus looks at us individually and he says, you're weak, you're foolish, there's nothing that you can do. If you're offended by that statement, friend, let me tell you, you've got a pride problem. You don't see yourself accurately. I don't see myself accurately. If we see ourselves as strong, we see ourselves as mighty, we see ourselves as wise, the Bible has terms for, for, for that, about being wise in our own eyes. We don't want to be that guy. How does the Bible see us? He says in Psalm 90, Moses told us, you return, to man, you return man to dust. God sees us as animated dirt. That's what these bodies are. James calls us water vapor. He says, Think of the coffee, you know, a teapot, a little tea kettle, our vapor. We appear for a little bit, and then we're gone. It's, and where does it go? I don't know. It just disappears. He calls us grass that is cut down. Uh, you know, a generation grows up, and it's cut down. A generation grows up, and it's cut down. That's how the Bible sees us. He says we're a flower that shows for just a brief moment. Oh, isn't that beautiful? And it's gone. That's how the Bible sees us. And when we don't see ourselves that way, we become shadow and coal. You say, who is that? Those are our two dogs we used to have in China. They're little minpin chihuahua something else mix. I don't know what they were. But if you know anything about minpins, they're called the king of toys. Okay, this is itty bitty little dog. I don't know how much they weighed, maybe seven, eight pounds. Tiny little dogs. But if they came up to a great Dane, they would still have it out with them. Because even though he's this itty bitty little dog, uh, we kept him on a leash, not so he wouldn't hurt others, but so other dogs wouldn't devour him. And they would just, they would lunge after and, and try to protect everything in their sight. And they thought they were this big, but in their hearts, they thought they were this big, that they were mighty and strong, and it gets them into trouble. In the same way in the church, sometimes, friends, we can see ourselves as mighty. We see ourselves as wise. And when we do that, we're no longer relying on the strength of God, but our own. And God doesn't work freely through a church like that. Instead, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you. Everything that I have, all the power that God has, he says, it's enough for you. You don't need to depend on yourselves. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Let me ask you, According to that text right there, little quiz, how do we get the power of Christ to rest on me? It's by, a, by gladly accepting the fact that I'm weak and not resting in my own way of thinking, not trying to make the church in my own image, not trying to make the church as I like it, as I think it should be. We rest in what Jesus says it should be. And then the power of Christ rests upon us as a body, as a church. He says in verse eight, I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. Philadelphia kept the word of God. That's the, that's the symptom of a weak person. 
Someone who knows they're not wise. They know they're not smart. They know they cannot build the church. And so they go to the only source of truth that we have, and that is the word of God alone. And just like in Job 23, 12, he says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Job so loved the word of God, he wanted it more than lunch. How many of you can say that this morning? You want, you want to hear the word of God more than you want to go out to Cheddar's after church. That's how Job felt. When we're not, we think we're smart. Proverbs 3, 7 calls it being wise in our own eyes, but Philadelphia wasn't that. They're Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to trust. Put faith in your what? Your own understanding. In all your ways, in every area of life, in business, in home, in the church, acknowledge him. Consider what God wants. Pray to him for his power. And when we do that, what will he promise? He will direct our paths. He will make literally our paths straight. God will take the crooked and make it straight. He will remove inhibitions to growing and moving forward. If you will, he will open a door just like he did here for Philadelphia. But to do that, for God to open doors, we, we can't be trusting in ourselves. We can't be trying to make the church in our own image. We can't be trying to make the church what I'm used to and familiar with and comfortable with simply. I'm not saying we're trying to make the church uncomfortable. I'm saying that we make the church what glorifies Jesus, and he wants to inhabit that building. He wants to inhabit those people and to bless them. And in verse 8, he says, Philadelphia did not deny his name. There's always social pressure to deny Christ, especially in our culture today. There's so much pressure in the internet. It just makes it that much more difficult to hold fast to Jesus Christ. Because there's a lot of people that will put a lot of pressure on you. They'll cancel you in a heartbeat. And Jesus is not politically correct. He simply speaks the truth. He's not trying to, to taper down the truth into something that man can appreciate or enjoy. When we see Philadelphia not denying his name, even though they're weak and of little power, we think, wow, they're fearless, they're strong. But instead, what did, what did, uh, where does that fear, uh, that lack of fear come from? It comes from being possessed by a greater fear. Hebrews 13, 6 reminds us, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? You're not concerned about what man can do when you're more concerned about what God can do. Matthew 10, 28 says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can throw, cast both body and soul into hell. When our eyes, my beloved, are on God, they're not on what people can do. You're like David. He wasn't looking at the strength of the beast of the giant that stood before him. He wasn't weighing out his spear. What was he doing? He was looking at God. My God shall do this. My God shall do that. It's not that you don't fear people. I saw a little video this week of this little seal. He was following these fishermen in the ocean, right? And, and animals don't normally do that. Seals are like, there's some people. I'm going that way. And, but these animals following him, and they're like, what is this? So these little fishermen, they, sl they throttle down the boat and, and come to find out, sure enough, he was trying to catch up. And this seal jumps right on the boat, just kind of, hey, guys, gentlemen, what's up? You know, what's going on? And <laughs> these guys are like, what is happening here? But then they look out in the water, and what do they see? Da-da, you know. It, it was like this giant killer whale. This several thousand pound killer whale is hunting this, this poor little guy. And so this seal took one look at these three little skinny guys from Wisconsin, and he said, I'm going to join with these guys because I'm much more afraid of that over there. That is the fear of the Lord, friends. When we're gripped in the fear of the Lord, we're aware that there's a sovereign God, he's all-powerful, that I'm weak, 
I'm not as strong as him. I'm accountable to him. I'm going to see him one day. The fear of God will rest upon me, and pretty soon I'm not concerned with what man can do to me. That kind of boldness can be yours, friends, but you have to have an eye on Jesus. And Philadelphia certainly did. Proverbs 29, 25 reminds us actually that the fear of man, it lays a snare. It traps us. It prevents you from moving forward. When you're scared of what people will think, what people will say, what people will do, it snares you. It prevents you from being able to move forward. It prevents you from being able to do what God wants you to do because you're more worried about little weak man than almighty sovereign God. Number four, Jesus offers his protection. Chapter three, verse nine through 11, he says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. Say, I haven't seen one of those on a street corner. We'll talk about what that is. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan's who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, what is a synagogue of Satan? A synagogue, if you'll remember, is a meeting place for the Jews for religious and cultural importance. It started during the time when after they had sinned and God took them from the land, he took them into Babylon. They started meeting together in what they called synagogues. It was just a time to to gather for worship, for prayer. It was a precursor to the church. Well, there's some who are a part of that synagogue, but they're not of that synagogue. Who are they of? They're of Satan. So they're in the synagogue, but they're of Satan. It means that there's people who look religious, who act religious, who appear religious, who are a part of religious activities, but they're not truly a child of God. Can that happen in a church, by the way? Can we, can we ever have people in a church who come to church, they're active, they're, if, if you will, they appear faithful, but they're not actually truly born-again children of God? Of course there are. Jesus said there will be many in that day who say, Lord, Lord, they call him Lord. Have we not prophesied or preached in your name? Have we not done many mighty works in your name? And what does Jesus say? Depart from me, I never knew you. You weren't a part of me. You were part of a religious institution, but you were never immersed into the body and the life of Jesus Christ. That those exist. The Bible calls those people tares. In Matthew 13, 24 to 25, Jesus tells a story of the wheat and the tares. He simply says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and he sowed weeds amongst the wheat and went away. Okay, the good seed is that word of God that enters into that fertile soil and it grows and it produces wheat that produces fruit and produces, if you will, more wheat. But there's another kind of plant. The enemy sees this farmer who's very successful and he says, wow, I got to get in on that. And so he goes in at night when they're not looking. He's casting weed seeds in the middle of his field. And unfortunately, this particular type of seed, a Darnell plant, it grows up and it looks just like the wheat. And so there's no way for you to discern what is wheat and what's not until when? until they bear fruit. One of those doesn't bear fruit. It's a weed. A weed is something that lives in the garden. It's something that consumes all the nutrients of the garden. It damages all the plants around them, and yet it bears no fruit. What is a weed in the church? It's the same thing, friends. It's someone who is in the garden, okay? They're in the church. It's someone who tends to consume all of the church's resources of time and money. They want it all for themselves. And furthermore, this, they damage all the plants that are around them. 
It, it tends to be where a lot of damaged things happen. And yet they don't bear fruit. They're not the ones winning souls. They're not the ones discipling people. They're not the ones giving generously. They're not the ones who are showing the fruit of the Spirit or love. But they're here. Now, friends, this doesn't mean that everybody who's unkind, you say, well, I, that guy's a tear. If I ever saw a tear, that guy's a tear. I'm pointing at Rick. I didn't mean to point you at Rick there. Rick is not a tear. Not that I'm aware of, okay? It's not our job to figure out who the tares are, though. Our, our job is simply to preach the gospel. You know, that's why in those parable of the tares, we don't pull out the tares from the wheat just yet, okay? God is going to deal with the tares. So don't assume that just because somebody was unkind to you at one point in time that they're a tear. They may just be an, an immature Christian, or they may be a hurting Christian. Someone who's going through a difficult time, and they're just not casting their cares on the Lord, and they drop that pain onto you. Okay, so let's not try to figure out who the tares are. Just know that they exist. Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 9, that these who are of the synagogue of Satan who resist the church and everything it tries to do, at one point in time, it says Jesus will cause them to bow down at the feet of church at Philadelphia. God will deal with them. Furthermore, to, put one's, to bow down at someone's feet indicates total defeat and submission. You may feel like we're failing today as, a, as Christians in the world, but we're failing at a cause that will ultimately succeed. Okay? We're suffering in a cause that will ultimately succeed. We pray, we wait, we cast seed, but living by faith means we don't, it isn't cause and effect. Sometimes we do things in a church because it's right. Not, I'm not promising you, friends, that if you do all of these things right in a church that God is immediately going to blow open the doors of this church and cause it to grow. That's not faith anymore. If that's what it was, everybody would be following that path. Instead, faith means you do what's right in a church because it's right, and you leave the outcome to him. We do everything that it takes to win, okay? We, we glorify Jesus Christ. We preach the word. We share the gospel faithfully, individually, and as a body. We disciple our people, and we leave the outcome to him. And someday, though, Jesus says, it's going to be revealed that you did it right. And those who opposed you, they're going to bow at your feet. God is going to deal with them. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Patient endurance, once again, that they're true believers. True believers endure through difficulty and hardship. They don't abandon God. He promises them, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. What's he describing here? He's describing an hour, a period of difficulty, a period of trial. It's something that affects the entire world and every single person that's on it. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like the tribulation, doesn't it? And it, and it is, okay, hint. Uh, this tribulation, the tribulation you've often heard about in end times, it's that time after the rapture, the harpazo, the plucking of the church from the earth, the tribulation arrives, and it's a time of trial that affects everyone on earth. It's a seven-year period of trials with seals and trumpets and bold judgments and all those things that frighten you when, you when you read the book of Revelation that we don't fully understand often. Uh, it's a time where God is going to simply empty his wrath on sin on the entire world as he prepares to usher in a millennial kingdom. But it's more than that. This church is promised to be rescued from this time of suffering. It's promised here in this text. It's promised in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, whose context, by the way, 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about the, the rapture, the plucking of the church. It's, it says... Paul tells them, wait for his son from heaven. What does that sound like? Sounds like we're waiting for the rapture because we are. 
Wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that is coming. He delivers us from the tribulation, period. Now, why is he delivering us from wrath? Is it because he just doesn't want us to suffer? No, that's not it at all. When is our time of suffering? It's right now. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The servant is not greater than his master. Our time of suffering is right now. Furthermore, in, the, in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, the Bible talks about the tribulation period as a time of Jacob's sorrow. Who's Jacob? Also known by what name? Israel. So the tribulation is a time of Israel's suffering, Israel's sorrow, Israel's pain. Why is that? Because God, if you remember in the, this is going to go, you ready for this? This is, this is red beans and rice. This is, this is good, healthy food here. The book of Daniel Chapter 9 talks about a prophecy called the 70 weeks of Daniel. 70 weeks, simply 77, 77-year periods, which showed from the decree of Cyrus all the way to when the Messiah came and when he was cut off, when he died. When that happened, God's prophetic calendar was paused for, for many reasons. We won't go into just yet. But that there's one week of Daniel's prophecy left to the nation of Israel, and that's why we know, by the way, that the, the tribulation is a seven-year period. It's part of that series of prophecies to Israel. So if God is going to resume Israel representing him here on earth just like he used to and just like was promised in Romans 11 that God has not abandoned Israel, he's going to come back to them again one day, God first has to get the people representing him out of the way. And so he's going to pluck the church away and he's going to represent himself through Israel, through 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, and they're going to be divinely protected by God and enter in and repopulate a literal millennial kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. That's why we're taken from the earth. You didn't want that sermon on eschatology, but you got it anyway. Jesus, to these people, offers hope. He says, I am coming soon. Now you say, well, I've been hearing that for a while. When he says soon, it doesn't mean that Jesus offers this, and in three and a half years, he's going to show up. It has the idea of suddenly, when the purposes and plans of God come to fruition, it will happen immediately, and exactly according to the timing that God has in mind. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have that no one may seize your crown. While we're waiting for Jesus, what does he command us to do? Hold fast. Hold fast, friends, if you study it. In Ephesians chapter 6, one of the primary passages of spiritual warfare, hold fast is spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare, there's a lot of stuff floating around about what it is. It's not nearly as crazy or spooky as it sounds to you. It doesn't mean we're casting demons out of our house. We're not, you know, learning incantations. We're not binding Satan. We're not doing any of that, okay? Spiritual warfare is a lot simpler than that. It's, spiritual warfare is a truth battle. You have Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. You have Satan, who's the father of lies. You have the truth, which sets, men's free, which sets men free, and you have lies, which enslave men to sin, Okay, and so the church, God has given us a body of truth to hang on to. If you will, a hill to die on. He says, hold fast. Hang on. Don't let this go. Hold on to this word. Society will leave it. People will leave it. Some of your own family may leave it. Hang on tight. Die on this hill. Hold fast to the word. 
Four times it's directly commanded in that passage of spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. Hold fast, hold fast, hold fast, hold fast, right? And then two other times it's implied. So six times he were commanded in spiritual warfare. It's simply take the truth of the word of God. Don't be, get carried away with wise tales and, and, be, and false beliefs and bizarre thoughts or philosophies, but take them all captive to the obedience of Christ, to the truth of his word. As a church, we hold fast to the word of God. That is our command. He says, do that so that no one may seize your crown. Say, I don't even have a crown. This word crown, Stephanos, it's the wreath that you would get, a laurel wreath that you would earn if you're competing in Olympic games back then. And there's a sense in which believers are rewarded. They're given a crown. They competed according to the rules. They finished all the way to the end, and they receive a crown. Don't let anyone take that from you by getting you to depart from the word of God, to change or alter the gospel because it's popular. He promises us in verse 12 and 13, the one who conquers, the one who finishes the battle, they're true believers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, a pillar in the temple was that which upon the entire rest of the temple body was supported by. So uh, when you say a pillar, you know, we talk about people being the pillars of the church, right? A pillar is something that indicates strength. It supports and upholds things. It indicates permanence. The one who conquers a true believer, God promises us a, sense, a place of permanence within his temple. It's a promise of security. It's also a promise of honor. Often, if you look in the old pillars of a lot of the buildings back then, you'd have the great exploits of men and women and what they've done on those pillars, and it's a sense of eternal honor that's bestowed on someone, and Jesus promises that. Eternal reward and honor and permanence in the place of God for those who serve him. Verse 12, he says, never shall he go out of it. Again, indicating permanence. You're never gonna be cast out of heaven. He says, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes out of my God from heaven and my own new name. You say, what was all that? What is this about writing on me? God is gonna write on me? What is all this writing? It, writing one's name on something, I don't care if it's your underwear or a toy, okay? It indicates ownership. Jesus owns us. It shows possession. He writes many things on us. Uh, that the city of my God is written on us indicates our destination. When I was a young child going to Sunset View Elementary in Clear Lake, Iowa, they didn't trust kindergarten kids, first grade, second grade kids to get home. Instead, they'd take this little manila circle, this little card, and they'd pin it to our coats, right? And it said my name, had the name of my parents and my home address, and it also had the bus number I was supposed to get on because it indicates my final destination. And it makes sure and ensures that I get there. That's what Jesus has done. He says, I have written my name on you, the name of the, the new Jerusalem, the city that you're going to. I've got this little manila card with your name and the name of the Father and the name of the new Jerusalem. Friends, that's your destination, your final destination, and you're going home. He says New Jerusalem. Why is he saying New Jerusalem? Because believers, we don't live in heaven per se. That's the dwelling place of God. And while there's access and presence to the, the presence of God, we live on the new earth, don't we? And it's gigantic. If, 
I can't even tell you how big this new earth is because the capital city alone is 1,200 miles long, 1,200 miles wide, and somehow 1,200 miles high. Can you even imagine a city like that? And often what you describe as heaven, the pearly gate streets of gold, it's described in the New Jerusalem that we're going to live on. And he's saying that is our home. And furthermore, Jesus promises to write upon us his new name. Jesus gets a new name. We've talked a lot about getting new names here as a church. It indicates a change in position, a change of, of, of relationship, if you will. For Jesus gets to get a new name that nobody knows indicates a change of position in relationship. It says in Revelation 19, verse 12, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And that name is on his robe, it says, and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No longer is Jesus going to be some man from Nazareth. He's not going to be Jesus, Joseph's son. He's not even simply going to be Jesus, our Savior. He's going to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords for all eternity. And get this, what else does he write on you? He takes his name and he writes it on you. He's showing ownership He's showing intention for relationship. He's showing that he loves us. We're not just going to slide in past the sin detectors of heaven and just barely eke our way into eternity. Jesus is that father, if you will, of the prodigal son who is waiting and with eager anticipation for our arrival with arms open to receive us into his presence. He, we belong to him doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with that, though. You and I, we're Woody. You've seen Toy Story, right? Or maybe Toy Story 2, 3, 4. I think there's more Toy Story movies than there are uh, variants of COVID. Um, there's a lot of TV shows with Toy Story and Woody on there. Woody, you remember, he's that old, outmoded, outdated cowboy doll, right? The little, little string on his back. <laughs> you know, there's a snake in my boots. Woody. And Woody is, uh, he's old, he's from the old generation. He's, he's about cowboys and Indians and kids, they wanna play with Buzz Lightyear now, don't they, you know? And, and so he sees these new toys come in and they've got shiny new lasers and, and hats and they speak in Spanish and they do all kinds of crazy things. Woody feel, has always this existential crisis of belonging and belief, doesn't he? Continually, wondering what his standing with with Andy is. And if you remember the beginning of Toy Story 2, Woody's searching around for something he lost. He lost his hat. And he's searching everywhere because Andy's about to go to cowboy camp. And I want to go to cowboy camp with, with, with Andy, and he's not going to take me without my hat. And so, if you will, the shepherd comes by to remind him something, Bo Peep. And she comes up to him and says, what are you looking for? He says, I can't find my hat. He says, look under your boot. She says, there's no cowboy hat under my boot. There's just this name, Andy. And she says, uh-huh. And the boy who wrote that name is the same boy that'll take you to cowboy camp with or without your hat. Friends, sometimes we're like Woody in that we have this existential crisis sometimes with, with our God. Am I truly his child? Does he still love me? Does he want to take me to eternity to be with him? Can I trust him? Does he still love me? I lost my hat. I've lost a lot of other things. I've done bad things. I'm ashamed of the things I've done since being a Christian, much less the things I did before being a Christian. Will God still take me in? In Revelation chapter 3, in his address to the church at Philadelphia is a reminder that God has written his name on you. 
He showed you belonging to him. He shows you as to where you're going and where you will spend eternity. And it doesn't matter what you've done pre or post knowing Jesus. He loves you. And like that prodigal who wasted everything his dad gave him, he still can't wait to bring you into his presence. Why? Because God himself is love. And he loves because it's who he is, not because we've earned it. And so, friends, let's learn from this example of the church at Philadelphia. Let's rest and find joy in our God who dearly loves us, who, who actually wants to be around us, who wants us in his presence, and who promises to provide power and blessing. If only, friends, we'll get out of the way. We'll root sin out from ourselves. We'll root disunity out from us as a church. We won't slander. We won't complain. We won't backbite. We won't, uh, we won't tolerate false teaching. Instead, we lift up Jesus for the world to see, and we hold fast to the word of God. It's in that kind of church that Jesus wants to show himself mighty on your behalf, just as it says in the Chronicles, that the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the whole earth, to find that singular individual whose heart is fully his, that he might show himself mighty on their behalf. And I pray this morning, you will pray that with me, that God will find souls here who are fully sold out to him, that he might show himself mighty on our behalf. Will you do that with me? Let's close in this prayer. Our Father, we thank you this morning that you had given us life through Jesus Christ, that you have written, furthermore, his new name upon us, that we belong to you, that you have reassured us that our destination is with you for all eternity. And even though we've done wrong things, we've missed out on doing right things, we, we do wrong things, your love doesn't change for us. If we confess our sins, John 1 9 reminds us, he is faithful and just. Even when we're not faithful, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. God, I pray if there's anybody here today, today who, who does not have this assurance, who's not convinced yet that God has placed his name tag upon them and written down who his father is and written down where he is going, God, I pray that you would help that man or woman or child. God, this, to, this morning, today, to come to a place of understanding of your love for them, that they might joyously receive your son, Jesus Christ, to be their Savior and their Lord and have the same kind of assurance that we have in Him, we ask this. All in Christ's name, amen. If you would join me in just standing. Thanks for joining us today. It is our prayer that this has been an encouragement to you. If you're interested in our gathering times or just want more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Join us next week as we open God's Word together.